Okay, a little better, not much, but a little bit better than the last week. Okay, well, we're not going to do the verse in the service today, but I appreciate that you guys did memorize it. You never can tell when there'll be a pop quiz, so just be ready at a moment's notice to give us the Bible verse back. All right. We'll open this morning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And as I, I had warned the other pastors that in preaching through the Gospel of John, there would be segments of the Gospel of John that we would be able to cover large verse, numbers of verses in 10, 15 verses maybe. And then there would be times when there would just be one verse that we just cannot lump in with others and it needs to be considered by itself. And this morning is such a verse. But let me... Let me get into our world for a moment with you before we get into the Word. I would imagine in a room with the diversity of ages and people and experiences that are here this morning, that we would have many various experiences personally with the issue of guilt. I don't think you can draw breath for too long on planet Earth, have relationships, have responsibilities, be around people without having done something that you feel guilty about, something that you neglected to do, something that you very harmfully did to someone else, a decision that you made in your life at a certain season of life when it was very confusing and very difficult for you, and under pressure, you made a decision that you look back on it and you wish you had not. I would imagine in this room, and this is why I believe this morning is such a great time of healing, I'd imagine in this room there are some folks here who have issues like that that you have hidden. Very few, perhaps if anyone, knows some of these issues that have occurred in your past. They're not something you want to talk about. Can I... Can I just say something to you, especially if you've been a Christian for very long? When God, the Redeemer, the sovereign God, remember sovereignty means God is in charge of everything. And He is purposeful in everything. Even the grossest of sins, a great sovereign God is purposeful in that event. And God is a Redeemer, which means He comes into situations that are broken and He transforms them into something glorious. If that's the backdrop for who we are in relating to God as Christians, then I would dare say there probably should not be any event in your past that is a taboo for you to talk about. Now, I know some people, you can, you can get into a conversation and you, you pick the scab of an issue in their life and their demeanor changes and they, you know, they feel a certain way. And look, I just don't want to talk about that. If you have issues like that, then, then those issues have yet to meet the truth of God. Please don't, don't be at peace with that. Don't, you're, gonna, you're walking around a, a dysfunctional Christian. The God of glory wants to be more to you in your life. He wants to be seen in that event He wants you to be able to look at it and see God in it and see His glory coming out of it. 
To not be able to talk about it is almost in some way to let the enemy and sin have the last word. Sin has had the last word, and all you can do now is back up and just say, well, I just can't even go there. Okay, I can't, I can't talk about that person. I can't talk about that season in my life. That's a need for healing. I don't want to be insensitive. Those issues, when they exist in our hearts, they're big and they're powerful and they're effective. And we feel ashamed by them. We're embarrassed about them. Guilty, perhaps, by them. And, and today, I hope the word that we see here in John is going to help us tremendously. Webster defines guilt as the state of having done a wrong or committed an offense. He also says, a painful feeling of self-reproach resulting from a belief that one has done something wrong or immoral. That sense of painful introspection and disappointment with ourselves that we've done something wrong. There's got to be some element of right and wrong. Now, interesting, man has to deal with guilt. And the question is, how is man dealing with guilt? How do you deal with guilt? How does our culture deal with guilt? Our culture doesn't always deal with guilt the same way. If you're old enough and you can think back far enough, you can probably remember a time when people dealt differently with having done the wrong thing, with feelings of guilt. But today, let me highlight three quick ones here. People are either villainizing guilt, they are justifying their guilt, or they are relativizing their guilt. How do we villainize guilt? Well, John MacArthur, in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, says our culture has declared war on guilt. The very concept is considered medieval, obsolete, unproductive. According to Dr. Wayne Dyer, author of the 1976 mega bestseller, Your Erroneous Zones, where he tries to analyze life and find all the wrong thinking. This, is a, this book sold over six million copies. You will find fresh updates of it available even today. According to Dr. Dyer, guilt is nothing but a neurosis. Guilt zones, he wrote, must be exterminated, spray cleaned, and sterilized forever. The library's periodical catalog lists these recent magazine articles under the heading guilt. How to stop being so tough on yourself. Guilt can drive you crazy. Guilt mongering. Getting rid of the guilts. Stop pleading guilty. Don't feed the guilt monster. And a host of similar titles. Even Ann Landers has written... One of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life if you let it. Remember, guilt is a pollutant and we don't need any more of it in the world. So much of our world today, when it comes to feelings that get generated because we have felt like we have violated some moral parameter, we have failed in some regard, we've sinned, whatever we call it. Today, go to war against that. You don't need those feelings in your life, and we need to do everything we can to get them out of your life. Or some folks are justifying guilt. The headline of an advice column caught my eye. It summed up the universal counsel of our generation. It's not your fault. A woman had written to say she had tried every form of therapy she knew and still could not break a self-destructive habit. The first step you must take, the columnist responded, is to stop blaming yourself. Your compulsive behavior is not your fault. Refuse to accept blame. And above all, do not blame yourself. 
Heaping guilt on yourself only adds to your stress, low self-esteem, worry, depression, feelings of inadequacy, and dependence on others. Let go of your guilt feelings. Now, there are there's such a long list, and this is not my intention to live in a message on guilt. This is just uh, a thought for us this morning. But we live in a world that constantly is, is telling us, and we will learn to tell ourselves, whatever I just did, it's not my fault. People go to trial today, and they've done some horrendous crime. They've mistreated somebody and killed people, and... And, and, and the angle on it is, you know, kind of this, well, they were temporarily insane. It's not their fault. I think you can make a good definition for all sin is temporary insanity. All of it is. Anybody who disobeys the God of the universe knowing that he's coming later on to collect, you're kind of crazy. So when we create this, well, it was the way he was brought up. You understand? You know, his his parents treated him this way and, and then this happened in his life and then that event happened in his life. And then he was 14. This happened and 18. This happened. And, and, I mean, you understand. And when you hear that sort of thing over and over and over and over again in people's lives, you start looking at your own life through the same grid. Well, yeah, well, if, well, if he's kind of gone nuts because of that in his life, well, what about me? I have this and that. Matter of fact, I'm listening to his story. Mine sounds kind of like it. Maybe I ought to go out and do some of this stuff. You start convincing yourself. It's not my fault. See, I'm out of control. I'm not responsible. I'm failing others. I've got a gambling addiction or a drug this or that. It's not my fault. See, I can't hold down a job. And, you know, my family's out on the street. But you see, it's not my fault because, you know, I've got a drug addiction. It's not my fault. See, so we try to deal with guilt. See, I think a lot of this no fault issue is an attempt by man to silence the sounds of guilt in our soul. So either you go to war against it and villainize it or you justify it or in our postmodern world, we relativize everything. You know, you might feel really bad. You know, I've, oh man, I did this the other day and I feel really bad about it. You feel bad because as Webster defines guilt, it, it results from a belief that one has done something wrong. So you have to believe something about right and wrong in order to feel like, okay, right now, this line, I'm on the wrong side of this line as it relates to my wife or my job or whatever. I'm on the wrong side of this and I feel guilty as a result of it. Well, there's a couple of things you can do. You can either learn biblically how to resolve guilt or you can just move the line. Right? Let me move the line over here. Okay, now the line's over there. You know, I feel much better now. I'm still doing the same thing, but I feel so much better about me. That's what postmodernism has done. Postmodernism comes along and says, well, Keith, you know, I understand you draw the line right there and you feel really bad about that. But you know what? I don't. I don't draw the line right there. I draw the line over here and I, I don't feel bad about this at all. And it becomes this personal defining of what you consider to be right and wrong. And if you can redefine your wrong behavior as right, well, then you get to feel OK about it. Now, the problem with all that is it, it plays with guilt at the surface level. And, and guilt dwells at the bottom of the ocean of your soul. And you can change the surface all you want. If you don't get down to where guilt lives, you'll never deal with it. You think you're dealing with it temporarily, but you're not dealing with it. I wrote this out in your outline. Seeking remedy from guilt by saying that one doesn't believe in sin is about as effective to the human soul as seeking remedy from a physical disease by saying, I don't believe in sickness. 
doctor comes in and pronounces that you have this terminal illness. Oh, well, I don't really believe in sickness. Oh, really? As though that makes a lot of difference. That thing's going to eat your body up and you're going to be dead in six months. Well, I mean, that, maybe that's true for you, but I don't believe in sickness, you see. Now, you walk away from that doctor and you go get up the next morning. You tell me that that's okay. You're satisfied. Your soul's fine. Now, your soul is telling you you're going to be dead in six months. And you can make all the noise on the surface you want. But your soul is troubled. Because your soul knows better. And the foolishness of making a lot. We make noise in our life, right? We get busy. We do lots of things. You know why many of us are making so much noise in our life? Because we can't stand to hear what's at the bottom of the ocean of our soul. My soul keeps telling me where I've failed, where I've fallen short. I'm on the wrong side of the line. I have these guilty issues in my life. Well, is there a much greater remedy to guilt? Guilt is a common experience for all of us. Paul Tornier said, Guilt is present universally in the human soul. And we cannot deal with guilt without dealing with the religious questions it poses. Now, if you go into a bookstore and you look for books that are going to be dealing with guilt, shame, the emotions. And listen, you start getting guilty down on the bottom of your soul. You get this sense of, I'm not right, I'm not right, things aren't right, I'm not right. I'm not, I'm not okay. I'm not accepted. I'm not. And that just kind of bubbles up from the bottom of your soul constantly. It is irritating. It is irritating. You got a problem with anger in your life? I bet you got a problem with guilt. You got a problem running from thing to thing. You're restless. You're one of them restless people. You can't seem to give your attention to do anything for too long because you want to run to something else constantly. I bet you've not realized that's what's happening on the top, on the bottom. Unresolved issues of how you feel about yourself. And you can run into a bookstore to try and solve all these behavioral problems that are on the surface and find books on guilt and shame. This is where people come with a psychology mind. They come to the Bible and say... You know, I just don't get where this book is relevant. I mean, it's talking about stuff. I mean, here, what's this passage? How's this passage going to help me today? Right. John chapter one, verse twenty nine. I got I mean, I, I got all kinds of issues. I've been through two or three marriages. I've got problems in my past. So you're telling me this verse is going to help me. John one twenty nine. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But yeah, I, got, I got real problems, okay? I don't have time to, li- to have an agriculture lesson. I don't have time to listen and learn about sheep. I got real problems. I mean, that's cute. What is this? Mary had a little lamb? That's cute. Great. How does this help me? This, this word, this word is living. This word is designed and spoken by God to find the bottom of your soul in a way that nothing else can. As we've said every week that we open these passages, the unfolding of your word brings light and understanding. So it may be this morning that God is going to expose your heart to what it's been longing for. You just haven't realized, oh, that's what I've needed in the bottom of my soul all this time. Now, we are in this section 
where John the Baptist, I'd like to call him John the Witness, John the Witness in John chapter 1, has given us insight that his job, and this is where we all need to head, his job in being a witness was to prepare people to believe and receive. That was his job as a witness. I think that's an excellent, excellent model for any of us who are seeking to minister to any person on any level. When it comes to true ministry taking place, it's the Holy Spirit who has to come into your life and make that happen. But yet you and I are a part of that in each other's lives. What are we doing? Well, I think at best we're doing what John the Baptist does. John the Witness. We are preparing people to believe and receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Word into their lives. And whether that means preparing them for the day in which the Holy Spirit makes truth real and they believe and they reach out and grab hold of and trust in and receive the Word and they're saved, or they just receive truth in a way that heals their soul. I think whether we're a counselor or an evangelist, we're preparing people to believe and receive. But what's interesting in John, when he gets encapsulated, last week we looked at kind of John's message and his tone a little bit. But there's two things here, and I I wanted to move on faster from these verses, but I'm not going to be able to. There's two things here that John highlights. When John turns around to be a witness, the first of them we'll talk about this week. When he witnesses, verse 19, it starts off in saying, this is the testimony of John. This is the testimony of John, who has come to bear witness about the life, who is the light of all men, who was from the beginning, who is God himself. This is his testimony. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what did this statement mean to John? What did he sound like when he said it? What did it mean to an audience that would hear him say it? What, what was being conveyed when John uses this word picture about Christ? And then, then what does it mean to them and what does it mean to us? That's where I want us to get today. What does it mean to them and what does it mean to us? Well, the Bible's full of word pictures about Christ. He's the light who comes into the darkness. He is this light that comes into human experience. Uh, He is the bread of life that comes into humanity and feeds the deepest part of our soul. He's the door. All these word pictures all throughout Scripture. But I don't know if any of them can top the significance of He is the Lamb of God. This word means something to these folks. And it's important that we understand a little bit about the audience. One of the things that when we're reading the Bible is to remember, we are, the, we are the, say it carefully, we are the secondary readers of the Bible. We are intended to understand the Bible, but we're also intended to understand that the Bible is given to a primary audience and then to a secondary audience. The primary audience is the guys gathered here in the first century. And understanding what ears did they have to hear what John the Baptist was saying is pretty significant. You know, if, if a thousand years from now, somebody in New York City comes upon a, a Times-Picayune scrap piece of article, it's just a small piece of an article of an interview that was done with a man in New Orleans in 2006. And the interview is asking the question, well, tell us about the most significant event that's touched your life. And you read in the interview and the guy says, oh, well, that would be easy. Not just my life, but everybody I know. It'd be the day Katrina showed up at my doorstep. And that's all you got. That's all you got from the article. What on earth do you think that means? A thousand years from now, 
in another location. You're thinking, good night, that must have been some bad woman. (laughs) Messed up his world and everybody he knows? Wow. I mean, I know some bad people, but she is wicked. (laughs) See, now you and I read that article and instantly we know what it means, don't we? See, that's that's one of the things when you come to the Bible, there are there are instant words for people that are here that you and I will need to maybe get a tool out and about that handbook we mentioned last week and get some understanding of what did this word mean to that audience so that I can be impacted in a similar way. If you're a first century audience and you're hearing somebody describe a lamb, you know, what was it about Jesus that John's trying to convey? You know, he's he's woolly and cute. Oh, behold, the Lamb of God. Let's go pet him. You know, look how sweet. Oh, he travels in a herd. Uh, You know, what is he trying to say about this lamb? Well, when he brings this context of a lamb who takes away the sin of the world, everybody knows the context into which he's talking. He's speaking of sacrifice. Now, the difficulty for us is probably no one here has seen a sacrifice in your life. I mean, you go to the, you go to, I mean, you go to the supermarket to buy, you know, nice cut of steak. You'd be freaked out if out back there were people wrestling with the cows and slashing their throats, right? That'd be like, ooh, I'm never shopping there again. They were killing them in the parking lot. (laughs) But for these guys, sacrifice was an everyday experience. They saw it everywhere. It had meaning for them. From the Zondervan handbook there, it says sacrifice was the central act of worship in Bible times and was therefore understood by everyone. Now, go a little deeper, a little richer. This audience that John is speaking to, this is primarily this is a Jewish audience who would have been very familiar with sacrifice and its location and proximity to their lives. The people of God lived their lives ordered around the system of sacrifice. Let me just give you three quick examples. The centrality of the tabernacle and the temple. If you go back and you were to look these verses up, Exodus chapter 25, after the people of Israel, God has made promises to Abraham, generations have gone by, now you're down to this nation that's going to be called Israel, and they're taken out of Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai, and there at Mount Sinai, God reveals to them He's going to make a covenant with them as a nation. And you're going to be my special people. And he gives them all kinds of regulations. Here's how you relate to me. Based on who I am and based on what you need to know, here's how you're going to relate to me. And one of the first things that they're told is Moses is told, build a tabernacle for me that I may dwell amongst my people. Exodus 25, verse 8. says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Can you hold on to that phrase for next week? That I may dwell in in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, later on in that same passage, we come back at the end of that chapter and we find out again God says, Moses, this is Moses by himself. He's up on the mountain meeting with God. God shows him a tabernacle and and says, build this on the earth. And then God tells him, and be very careful to build it exactly like you saw it. So Moses actually sees a tabernacle in the heavens. 
And he comes down to earth and he builds what he sees. Now hold on to that, because at the end of this message it becomes very, very significant. Now this tabernacle becomes the talk of Israel. This is all that they're about. If you move on from Exodus chapter 25 on to the rest of the books in the Pentateuch, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, almost all the passages that are there are somehow got a thread stringing back to the tabernacle. It's services, it's activities, the priesthood, sacrificing. When they would travel, the tabernacle, if you will, it was a portable building. And so it traveled with them as they moved about in the wilderness. And the presence of God went. So wherever God went, they went. But the tabernacle was where God would manifest his presence. And whenever this would settle and they'd set it up, they literally were organized around the tabernacle. Their life was organized around this meeting place. You'd have three tribes to the north and three to the south and three to the east and three to the west. And in the middle was the tabernacle. Their whole life was familiar with this system of sacrifice. But there was a problem with God's desire. Set up this place. Why did God set it up? It's very important that you catch this, especially for next week. Set up this place because at the, at the end of it all, I just like bloody animals everywhere. That's why. That's not the goal here, is it? Why does God tell them to build a place? So that I may dwell in your midst. That's the goal of God here. But there's a problem here. God, if you want to come hang out with us, just come on. I mean, you know, the door's always open, God. Come whenever you'd like. That doesn't work. Because there's this, this issue of sin. Because of who God is, God will not, cannot dwell in the presence of sin. So the desire of God to dwell with His people is going to hit a barrier of man's sin is a problem. It's a very important scriptural understanding. Sin separates us from God. Genesis chapter 2, from the very beginning, God says, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Sin separates us from God. In the, in the moment that Adam and Eve ate of the tree, physically, their bodies begin to deteriorate on its way to physical death. But instantly, they are dead because they are separated from God. What their soul longs for the most is not just the air to breathe and the fruit to eat. What their soul longs for is the presence of God to be able to embrace and experience the life of God from God. And they are dead to that now. And they have been separated from God. Isaiah 59, thousands of years later, says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is a very significant element of theology. There are some folks who who have not gone to the Bible to get their picture of who God is. They've gone to the world. They've gone to philosophy and religion that doesn't take the Bible as its basis for what it believes. And what you end up with is you end up with this grandfatherly image who just pretty much is okay with everything. And so no one can figure out why are things going the way I, you know, they are in my life. Well, you know, it can't possibly be because God's not for you. Well, I know that's not the case. God's for everybody, see. Really? I get shocked and surprised when I come to Isaiah 59 and I find out God's not even listening. 
Of course he's listening. He's God on a string. I mean, we're his children after all. Another unbiblical concept. And we pull on God and he comes. No. No, the God of the universe is holy and righteous and offended by sin. And so therefore he says he actually, the sins in our lives have hidden his face from us. Our iniquities have made a separation between us and God. This has got to get solved somehow. This is a problem. There are consequences to sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. When we sin, there will be separation between us and God. That's just the facts of the Bible. But yet God has this desire, I want to dwell with you. I I want my presence to be in your midst. But there's a problem with sin here. Now, Now, maybe some of us in our pragmatic natural thinking would think, well, you know, God, if you, really want to, if you really just want to be with us, can't you just kind of overlook the sin thing? I mean, do you have to make such a big deal out of it? I mean, for goodness sake, we all hang out with each other, and, and, and we're not always happy with the way each other are, but you know, we just kind of make the best of it, doggone it, and we get over that. And we, so we, we bring our natural-minded human thinking to God, and we impose it on God, and we forget God is not like us. We, we cannot lower God and make Him into who we are. There is, I don't know how to, I don't know how to say this. I search for illustrations. There is something about God and sin that it's not as though God sits back to figure out whether or not He'll respond to sin. The very nature of God, His righteous, holy, pure character, responds. It doesn't think about responding it responds the way in which some you know our body has certain reflexes how many guys have ever had you know you know what smelling salts are when you pass out you break this little thing and you stick it under somebody's nose anybody ever anybody ever had smelling salts stuck under your nose all right well you can go with me here i had some guy thought it was really funny oh really funny watch this broke this thing stuffed it up in my nose i thought somebody had just put 10,000 volts of electricity straight from my nose to the back of my head. It just went boom. I mean, I never had an experience like this in my life. He didn't break it underneath my nose and I went, hmm, I wonder if I should respond violently. <laughs> you know, I had no say-so over it. And that's why people are, you know, they're half dead. The guy's passed out on the ground. He's, you know, thing. you break that thing underneath his nose. He doesn't have to think about whether he's going to be revived or not. If, he's, if his heart is beating and he's capable of responding, he's responding. There's something about the character of God that it's that way towards sin. It, it, it's, it, it's like fire in the, in the presence of paper. You know, it's not that the fire decides, you know what, today I'm not going to set anything on fire when I touch it. it. It doesn't have that effect. If you put paper... In contact with fire, the paper will be destroyed because of the nature of the paper and the nature of the fire. So we have to get rid of these ideas that, well, why doesn't God just kind of treat sin like, you know, just God just lighten up on the sin thing. You want to hang out with us? You know we're sinners. Hang out with us. Just kind of don't make such a big deal about the sin. No, if God hung out with us, he would destroy all of us. And not necessarily because he'd have to think about it, but just because of who he is. The nature of a perfect, holy God coming in contact with sin 
would annihilate us. So if God's going to want to hang out with us, something's going to need to be done about the issue of sin. Well, the tabernacle has built into it this incredible system of sacrifice. All over it, there are sacrificial elements to it. There are, there are daily offerings in the Scriptures. If you look into the, uh, the first six chapters of Leviticus, you find five different sin offerings that are in these chapters, spelled out. If you do this, you offer to God this way. If you do this, you offer to Him this way. Very clear, defined activities so that if one sins and God wants to dwell, one does not become destroyed instantly by the presence of God. There is an offering you can bring. And that offering involved animals being sacrificed. Quite often, lambs being sacrificed to God because of daily sins in people's lives. They would go to the temple. They would go to the tabernacle. And these animals would be slain. There's a little quote in your outline there. It says, There was a standard pattern of ritual. Worshippers brought their offerings to the forecourt of God's tent. They laid their hands on their offering, indicating that it was their property and substitute and slaughtered it. If it was a public offering, the priest did this. This moment where you had known, I have, I have violated the principles of God. I have disobeyed. I am at odds with God. And you would take from your flocks, your own possessions, you would take that animal. It had to be without blemish. And there were specifics about what this animal needed to be like. And you would take this lamb. And you would bring it to the tabernacle. And you would lay your hands on it. And you would identify with it. And you would, as you would, transfer the guilt of your sin to that animal. And then you would take its life. Why would you take its life? Because that was what sin required. There's consequences to sin. The wages of sin is death. So you are putting the consequence of sin onto this animal. And you would slit its throat. And in a basin, you would catch the blood. And you would bring that to the priest. And the priest would sprinkle it upon the altar. And that, that lamb would then be taken and he'd be cut up and put upon the altar. And you would do that over and over and over again throughout your life as a result of a variety of sins. And you would watch your neighbors do that over and over again. And your family members do it over and over and over again throughout your life. Somebody else, a lamb, taking your place and receiving your punishment. You had done it over and over again. And that was daily activity. Then God orients the life of, of the people of God around him further by creating these yearly calendar. The, the, the calendar for a Jew had sprinkled amongst it seven different festivals and each one of these festivals celebrated something about God. They were genuinely festivals where there was a celebration about God, but they were also filled with sacrifice where, again, there were animals being sacrificed, lambs being sacrificed at these seven different giant events that were being done where all the nation would come together and celebrate, but also recognize we are coming to celebrate before a God with whom we are guilty. Have sinned. 
And we will have to, we will have to sacrifice animals to take the punishment for our sin. We just, let me just highlight two of them. I'll do one of them real quickly. The Day of Atonement, what we would know as Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement was the one day, you know, there was a, it was a layout of the tabernacle, and the holiest part of the tabernacle was where the Ark of the Covenant stood. And the presence of God would dwell over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And one day out of the year, the high priest would come, and he was allowed to go into this holy place. And first he would sacrifice a cow, a heifer, for his own sin. And he would do all that we just described. Then he would take two goats. It's interesting if you read this. There's two goats, but they're a single offering. He would take two goats that represented the sinfulness of the nation, all of its rebellion, all of its sin. And and this was not offered by an individual. This was offered by the high priest on behalf of the collection of all the people of God. And he took the two goats, he took one of them and he cut it. And he drained the blood out of it. And he spread the blood upon the altar. He took the other goat and he laid his hands on that goat and he confessed the sins and the rebellion of the nation of Israel. Now that goat was called the scapegoat. You've heard that phrase? This is the scapegoat. The scapegoat, you know how that phrase is used, right? We're going to make that guy the scapegoat. What does that mean? He's going to take the fall for what we did wrong. Well, that's what the scapegoat would do. He would take the sins and he was led away into the wilderness to take away the sins of the people. You remember the picture of a lamb in the Passover. This Passover celebration when God is rescuing his people out of Egypt and he brings all these plagues and he's going to bring judgment. He's going to judge the nation of Egypt. And the final judgment that he brings is he's going to come into the land and he's going to judge sin and he's going to destroy all the firstborn. But he tells the Israelites, the night that I'm going to do that, I want you, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to slay it. And I'm going to want you to have a, a meal together. Each household, one lamb for each household. Don't break its bones. Eat this lamb. Take the blood from that lamb and smear it over the doorposts of your home so that when I see the blood, I will pass over your home as I'm destroying all the firstborn in the land. Now, this is so rich, and it tells you so much about God. Now, this this helps clean up some of our sloppy images of God. Did you have a a view of God that kind of says, well, wait a minute, time out. Why do they need to take blood and dirty up the lintel of the post outside the houses? Doesn't God know where all the Israelites live? I mean, come on, He is God. Couldn't He have just not killed all of them and go ahead and kill all the Egyptian? I mean, certainly He knows the difference between somebody who belongs to Him and somebody who's an Egyptian, right? Well, the problem with that is God is coming into the earth to judge. Does anybody here believe the Israelites were not guilty of sin? See, were the Egyptians worse sinners than the Israelites? No, sinners are sinners. And God has come to judge sinners. And his judgment is, I'm going to come into the land and destroy all the firstborn. And the only thing, the only thing that will spare you is if I look and I see the blood of a lamb over your door. Then the judgment will have been on the lamb. His life will have been taken. And I will pass over you. 
See, the, the justice and perfection of God doesn't let him just say, hey, you know, you and I are tight. Don't worry about it. I know you guys are as big as screw ups as those guys are. But listen, we're tight. It's not a problem. I'm going to come in and blast everybody else, but you guys are cool. Now, when the holy, perfect, righteous judge who has just comes, he will take them all out. Unless someone takes the judgment. The lamb takes the judgment. The lamb's blood was shed. See, there's something the Bible highlights that. Why bloodshed? Because the Bible says life is in the blood. And when the blood is spilt, the life is spilt. The life is given up. The life is yielded. The payment demanded. The day that you sin, you will die. The judgment for sin falls upon them. And the blood being shed is is the, the, the leaving of life from that person. So against this backdrop against these these pictures of what God has done in bringing mercy and bringing all these animals we, we we come to this place with all this background information on lambs and on sacrifices of a life that's been oriented around these elements for the entire history of the nation of Israel and there John stands one day baptizing at the river Jordan now one can imagine There's people coming by where he's located. Some people believe that the time and the location given the flow of John is that he's he's maybe a couple of weeks or so away from Passover when the Passover lambs would be shed. Historically, millions of lambs have been shed at Passover to die in the place of those who are guilty, celebrating God passing over the judgment of people. And... If he is within two or three weeks, it's probably very likely that where he's located, flocks are being led to Jerusalem. Because you're going to have hundreds of thousands of people descend upon Jerusalem, all of them looking to buy lambs to be slain to celebrate the Passover. So these flocks are being led from all over the place to Jerusalem. Do you remember remember when Jesus was born? It's a very interesting picture here. When Jesus was born, it says that there were shepherds that were keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now, if you know the geography, you'd know that Jerusalem and Bethlehem are only about six miles apart. It's like going from here to the airport. So within six miles, why are all these sheep out in the fields at night? Well, many commentators believe Jesus was not born in December. Believe he was born in the spring. Believe he was born right around Passover. When you see that, it's quite a picture. Because out in that field were all these sheep. Many of them would be Passover lambs. And in the midst of them was one being born who would be the Passover lamb. And here John the Baptist is standing baptized and all these flocks are coming by and perhaps walking through one of them, perhaps, Jesus comes approaching John the Baptist. And what does he sound like when he looks up amidst all these lambs that he knows what these lambs mean? And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is him. You understand, 1,500 years of this cycle of offerings, of daily lamb after lamb after lamb being sacrificed. This is the day his eyes are open. The Lamb of God. This goes all the way back. This is a day that began back in the Garden of Eden. 
Do you remember when man first sins and God comes to man and God clothes him with animal skins? Does anybody ever wonder what happened to the animals that used to be inside those skins? They're dead. Who must have performed the first sacrifice? It must have been God himself who took the life of those animals so that he wouldn't take Adam and Eve's life. And he covered them. That word covering is the word for atonement. This day is foreseen when Abel offers the offering to God. This day is foreseen when Noah gets out of the ark and before God he offers an offering, a sacrifice. This is a day foreseen. You want to see a day. Genesis chapter 22. The day that Abraham takes his son, his one and only son, to Mount Moriah under the direction of God to sacrifice him there. Listen to these words against the backdrop of what John the Baptist has just said. He gets to the mountain. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. God will provide for himself a lamb. Can you get this? John the Baptist looks up and he says, Behold, the lamb of God. See, all of history had pointed to this person, this event, this roadmap of sacrifice and bloodshed over and over and over and over again to the point in which now it's all being fulfilled. It's almost as though God created a language in sacrifice so that when the word was spoken, we would get it. It's like the vocabulary built all these years of what a sacrifice was, what it meant, why it was necessary, the significance of it, the way you went about doing the lamb so that when Jesus Christ came, we could understand the nature of what he was doing. He was our substitute. He was the one upon which men would lay their hands and the guilt of humanity would be transferred to him. And then his blood would be shed And God would see his blood and would pass over the judgment of all who put their faith in him. That's it. This is that day spoken of all throughout Scripture that finally, in this moment, John the Baptist allows us to see. Now, I want to read Scripture's commentary on Scripture here. And I I want us to see the benefit of what this has done for us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to read a a large portion of Scripture here, but I think you'll see the significance of it. Let me back up just for a couple of verses from Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now the point, and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also 
to have something to offer. Look in verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And this, this verse is telling us there's a tabernacle in the heavens that looks like the one on earth. Moses saw it and built something that looked just like it. In all these years, the priests have been serving in the earthly one, the temporary one, the one that is a shadow of the real one. There's a real tabernacle somewhere in the heavens. And the one that you and I get to see simply is there for a human language element. It's just God explaining something to us. Don't put all your faith and hope in this earthly thing. It's just pointing to a bigger reality than itself. Look over in chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Please hold on to that verse. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. See, you have a death in Christ that is a redeeming act. It buys us out of sin's effect upon our lives of the past. This is why I believe any event in your life, no matter how terrible, should be superseded by the redemption of God. It's a greater act that should give you hope and should release you from your past. Verse 16, For there, for where a will is involved, death of the one who made it must be established. Right? When you make a will out, it doesn't go into effect till you die. For a will takes effects only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins can, can you if you're here today can you let the reality of that verse mean something to you if you have sinned and at the bottom of the ocean of your soul your guilt cries out to you your only hope is that somewhere blood has been shed for you to be forgiven this is an eternal principle if there's no blood that's been shed i don't care what book you read I don't care what you try and teach yourself to think about yourself. You will not experience forgiveness. 
you will only experience forgiveness for what haunts your soul by blood being shed to forgive that sin. Thus it is necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Do you remember the high priest? He would go into the presence of God once a year. Our great high priest has gone right into the presence of God on our behalf in the heavenlies, not in a human court, not by something made with hands. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, listen to this, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. Can you see this? The shadow meaning this language that God created, this imagery, this, this puppet imagery on the wall so that God could tell a story through this thing so that we could follow the storyline so that when the real thing came, we could go... I I recognize that. It looks just like the shadows. These things on the earth have just been shadows. Jesus is the real thing. The law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Can, can, you, can you read the Bible with everything in your mind in this moment right now? Do you understand that verse has incredible implications? It's saying the earthly thing could not release you from sin. The earthly rituals, they couldn't release you from sin. But the one perfect offering that went into heaven, he can. And when he does you will no longer have consciousness of sin. Do you hear the word that Bill brought this morning about being accepted in the grace of God? you understand why that word is true? Because sin no longer stands between us and God. No longer is it there. What this high priest, this Lamb of God did was to remove it from its context between me and God. Verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, right? Every year. You've got to go back to the temple and you've got to slay another animal. Every year. Yom Kippur comes every year. Passover comes every year. Every year. And you get to be reminded. What are you reminded of? We are guilty sinners before God. Verse 4. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came to the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body have you prepared for me. Right? John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Skip to verse 11. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Never take away sins. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away sin. You see what John saw? Oh, he saw the fulfillment and much more. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, why was it that when the priest in the Old Testament made the offering, confessed the sin of the nation, slayed the animals, and we went and did this ritual, why was it that we had to come back and come back and come back? Because that system was designed by God to show you your guilt. See, now this is very important because in this room there are people who live in 2007 America who are being told, you want to deal with guilt? Well, the first thing you need to do is silence the noise of it. Get it out of your life. Treat it like an enemy. It doesn't belong there. But yet you find a God who created a system that year after year after year you had to come back and come back. And when you sinned, you had to bring another animal and another animal. You had to go to this festival and animals would be slain and confession of sin would be over and over and over again. Why? To convince us that we were guilty before a holy God. You know what's interesting? This system. When, when this animal was slain and the blood was put on the altar year after year after year. The Bible says that it didn't actually forgive sins. What God had created, it's almost as though those, this, this is a good American 2007 illustration, it's almost as though that, that system was a visa card. It was a tab. You'd show up each year with your load of sin and you'd confess it and you'd put it onto the lamb and you'd walk away for another year getting to breathe and be a human being on planet earth. But where did the sins go? They were still there. You just, in essence, put it on my tab and you walked away for another year. And next year you came back and you confessed your sins of the past year and you did it again. You took out your visa card. Over and over and over again throughout your lifetime, throughout the history of the nation of Israel. Listen, all, all they were doing was moving their sin to another location. It was not being taken away. It's almost like, you know, I, I use my visa card to pay my electric bill and my food bill and blah, 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 blah. Well, great. You get to eat every month and you get to have lights turned on. But at, the, at some point, somebody's got to pay that visa bill. Well, that's what God did. He created a system where man could continue to receive the goodness and the kindness of God until the day would come when somebody's going to have to pay. 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes it all away. He's going to remove it all from our lives. No more bill to pay. No more reminder. Oh, every year we go and show up and there's a reminder notice. And we confess and the high priest represents us and he puts his hands on the sheep and he reminds us this sheep is dying because of your sin. And we were reminded, okay, I know I already felt bad enough about that. Thanks for telling me again. This is the nature of the system God had created. But what a day has come into our lives. Ann Landers is right. One of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy-consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life. And my question is, so how do you deal with guilt? How do you deal with the internal bubbling of your soul that tells you you're wrong? Something else is going to have to tell you you're okay now. And it can't be you. It can't be a psych job. Right? It's going to have to be a verse like chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's a, that's a tongue twister of a verse. People who are still changing, people who are being sanctified, people who still have need to be changed. Amen? You with me? We all know i got some stuff that could still change in me. And that's the very stuff that has the potential to bubble up in my soul and tell me, you're wrong. You're wrong. Your life is not right. Be dissettled. Don't have peace. You're wrong. Your life is wrong. Something greater than my need to be further sanctified needs to inform me. It's right there in that passage. By a single offering of the Lamb of God who forever takes away the sins of the world, including mine, He has perfected for all time me. He has made me acceptable before God for all time. This is the truth. This is not about how you feel about your sin. This is the truth about what God does with our sin. And what does it mean for us? Matt, go ahead and come up. Turn back to chapter 9 in Hebrews for a second. Listen to the effect this should have on our souls. Verse 13, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more Will it purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? God has done something in His Son taking our sins and shedding His blood that has the power to cleanse our conscience from past sins and dead works and to release us. What a great purpose to release us to serve the living God. Now listen right now. I'm not in a hurry right now. So don't look at your watch and don't get in a hurry. There are some people here who you desperately need to let this be real to you.
work is already done. It's already fully accomplished. There cannot be anything else that can make this any more real. But yet you could be here today. You could be here today and be a Christian. And your past sins, your thoughts about your failures, and how you don't measure up, and however you've been trying to deal with that, are paralyzing your life. You are not released to serve the living God because the bottom of your soul reminds you over and over again you are a guilty sinner in this category or in that one, in what you've done. And listen, don't try and play the shell game with moving your guilt around. It's not my fault. It doesn't work. From the bottom of your soul, your soul continues to bubble up its accusations. You can move the stuff on the surface all you want. It doesn't work. And I believe God this morning wants to wonderfully heal souls from guilt and shame. To cleanse your life. And you'll see why fully next week. She can't get to next week unless she grasps this week. Let's everybody stand up together. Some of us need to look upon you with the years and years of reminders that have been so near to our thinking and our our listening and echo the passionate embrace that John the Baptist said when he looked up and he saw finally it's over. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away my sins so that I don't ever have to be reminded of them again. If you're here this morning and have never in your life placed all of your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ. What the Bible calls believing and receiving Him. Believing. Fully convinced what you heard this morning is the truth about Jesus Christ. He died to take away your sins. To cleanse you from them and release you from them. And not just to acknowledge that, but to receive it. But to say, Lord, that's for me. If you've never done that, you do it by faith. You reach out and you grab the invisible by faith. You say, God, I, today I put my hope in you. Forgive me. Forgive me of all my sins. Begin even now. If you want to do that, listen, you do it right now in your own heart. Begin right now. The ones that jump forward the fastest, the ones that bring tears, the ones that you regret the most.
Confess them to Him. And remember, He took all the sins away. He's not coming back again. There was not any left that He has to come back and do again. He takes them all away. Every sin you ever committed and every one you ever will commit, He has taken them all. And what He wants you to do this morning is receive Him as the Lamb of God so that you can be released from your sins. Some here, maybe you have embraced Christ years ago, but somehow you have not. You've not fully benefited from the reality that He is the Lamb of God who takes all of your sins. And you have issues. I believe there are some here this morning. You have issues that you just can't go there. You have issues that cast a shadow on your life. Your personality is a certain way. You avoid certain things. There's been limitation in your life. Because from the bottom of your soul, there's this sound of guilt. And you don't know how to respond to it. Well, I want you to respond this morning with a greater truth. There's something more loud here this morning than your guilt. It is your forgiveness. Your complete, utter forgiveness. I want you to do. I want you to. I want you to come and respond this morning. The Lord's opened your eyes this morning as you've been here, and your eyes are open right now, and you realize, oh Lord, I am forgiven for that. I want you to come. I want you to lay your hands on the Lamb. I want you to come forward, almost symbolically. I want you to take that issue, whatever it is in your life. I want you to put it on the Lamb of God, and I want you to recognize that when He went to the cross, He took it with Him, and the blood that was shed was shed for that sin, the one you are most intimidated and most controlled by. So if you're here this morning and there are any issues in your life like that, I want you to come. I want you to get out of your chair right now. I'm not going to make you publicly confess, but I do want you to come. And I want you to come symbolically putting your hands by faith on the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. And let Him be your scapegoat. Let him be the one who takes your sin and separates you as far as the east is from the west. How far can an infinite God run with your sin? He can run as far as the east is from the west. I was praying for us last night and for a number of folks I tried to hold on to them I believe that there are some here who who have tried to deal with their guilt with the no it's not my fault because somebody else has done something and I'm not trying in any way to minimize that somebody else perhaps has done something very influential in your life but what has happened is Their sin has provoked you to sin. And now you are living in the guilt of your own sin. And I believe God wants to silence the guilt of that sin this morning and release you from it. I believe there's a woman here who's done the wrong thing as a result of being done wrong. And I actually believe there are a couple of women who fall in that category. I believe there is at least a woman here 
who did the wrong thing because your husband did the wrong thing and now you live in the guilt of what you did. Come, lay your hands on the Lamb of God. Confess your sin and let Him take it as far as the east is from the west so it doesn't need to bubble up from your soul and tell you any longer about your failure. I believe that there's a... Again, this was another woman who... The sins of the past are in the area somehow of abuse. You've had some kind of abuse in your past. And and what it's resulted in is sin against your husband. You've withdrawn yourself from your husband. I believe... I believe specifically it is a sexual issue. And you live with the guilt that you don't satisfy your husband. And you don't get near him. And he's said things to you and he's tried to do the best he can with it. But even when he is understanding, you feel guilty. I believe the Lord wants to silence your guilt. He wants to address the issue of sin. He wants you to confess. And you're going to have to trust Him in an area of your past. But as regards your sin, come lay your hands on the Lamb of God and put your faith in Him. And let Him remove your sin. Let Him take it away so that you can be released from guilt. So you no longer can be paralyzed so that you can serve the living God having your conscience sprinkled clean. categories that we live in in this room. Your work entering into the heavens, into a heavenly tabernacle to go before the very presence of God on our behalf with blood shed for our sin. That will never be done again, Lord. It will never be done again. And it doesn't need to be done again, Lord. Because there's not any longer a need for forgiveness for those who are in Christ it's all been forgiven our sins have been removed and when you come back the next time you're not coming back to scold us draw us off into a corner remind us of our failings you're coming back without remembrance of our sin Lord you won't be bringing it up you will be the father running down the driveway throwing your arms around us. And though we know we are guilty, your forgiveness will swallow our lives. And in that day, you will not remember our sins. Lord, would you drive this into our hearts in a way that releases us from captivity to guilt and sin. Lord, as we sing together, Holy Spirit, write these truths in our hearts that we may live by them and receive grace from what your Son, O God, has accomplished on our behalf as our Lamb.
Your mercy flows from hands pierced for me, for I dare not stand on my righteousness. My every hope rests on what Christ has done. I come, I come by the blood, I come by the cross, for Your mercy flows from hands pierced for me. Ah. Uh-huh. 